Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. If you have a copy of God's Word, join me in Galatians chapter 1. We began a series, brand new series last week called The Grace Driven Life. And we're going to continue that today as we move verse by verse through this powerful book of Scripture. There are a lot of things that we who now live in the 21st century take for granted. One of those things I experienced just yesterday. My daughter came back with me. I I did just a quick down and back from South Carolina because honestly, 20 some odd days is just way too long to be away from my wife. And so we were coming back yesterday and we thought it would make it easier on everybody if I would bring at least one of the kids back with me. And so about 200 miles into that trip, I looked over and I realized there's something my daughter has that I didn't have when I was taking long trips like that with my parents. She had this thing called a tablet. And she was playing video games. And you know what was happening? She was not bored out of her skull. And I was enjoying quiet. Isn't that great? It's a wonderful thing. Both sides took for granted. And I remember looking at her using that tablet and thinking to myself, the only thing I could do was try to identify license plates from all 50 states. That was pretty much, that, that was the activity that would get us from, you know, from A to B or wherever we go. Uh, but there's all kinds of things. Technological advance has given us all kinds of advantages in the 21st century that we didn't necessarily enjoy, at least not universally. They weren't universally present back then. Everything from remote controls. How many of you were the remote control for your parents? Amen? Yeah, I mean, literally call me in from the other room. What do you need, Dad? Change the channel, right? And you flip. Kids? TVs had knobs on them. It it was this amazing thing. The internet, the Amazon wish list, you've heard me sing its praises from up here. All kinds of things to occupy your time on a trip, like the tablet example. But there's a few things that we don't even think about anymore that just a few generations ago were not just inconveniences. They were matters of life and death. One of those things was the spread of infectious disease. Today, when we hear about measles or whooping cough or, or polio, which was one of the most feared diseases of the 20th century in the West, we, we just kind of shrug our shoulders and go, yeah, it must have been tough. That must have really stunk to have lived back in that time. It's hard to imagine that there was a time in which a significant percentage of measles cases would lead almost automatically to pneumonia, the swelling of the brain, and to death. It's hard to imagine a time when a polio diagnosis was almost certainly a future pronouncement of paralysis or brain infection or death. It's amazing when I think about the number of diseases that just a moment ago in time carried a death sentence that today they just send you home with a course of medication and sometimes as recently as as quickly as three days it's cleared up or even better that changed all of this was smallpox. Smallpox was an airborne virus, still is an airborne virus, present in a lot of places still in the developing world. It's highly contagious And, and in the 18th century somewhere between 50 and 75% of those who contracted it would die from it. 
But in the early 1700s, there was a Boston physician named Zabdiel Boylston, and at the urging of his pastor, believe it or not, a Puritan by the name of Cotton Mather, Boylston began to try an ancient preventative method that had honestly been around since the Chinese had first invented it in the 10th century. It's called an inoculation. And by definition, the kind of treatment that it provided was this. By definition, an inoculation, it's the artificial induction of immunity into the body And the way you do this, this is going to sound crazy, is by introducing a controlled amount of the actual disease into the body, the theory being that this induction exponentially builds the body's own capacity for immunity, and it keeps you from getting the disease. And where the dreaded smallpox virus is concerned, it worked. That virus is virtually non-existent in the West today. And when I think about stories like that, I am amazed at the concept that if my body is introduced to a soft substitute for a disease, my resistance to the real thing increases dramatically. And in the medical field, this is borderline miracle. This is really good stuff. But what I want to talk to you about today is another kind of inoculation. I want to talk to you about not a medical one but a spiritual one. Not a good one, but a bad one. Not one that prevents disease, but one that if you receive it and you build up enough immunity to the real thing, is eternally deadly to your soul. This entire series is about the grace-driven life. And I've told you two things about this letter already. Number one, that the overall message is powerful. It is life transforming and it can, and I believe it will, set some people in front of me free over the course of the next four months. Here's the other side of that letter. It's a fairly angry letter because before Paul can describe for us the freedom that Christ provides, he has to first tell us what we need to avoid. I mentioned last week when this series began that, again, this is a very blunt and angry letter. Paul will never show in any other letter he writes in the New Testament as much heated passion as he does here. And we see in these verses that Pastor Jack read to us why he's so emotionally charged. He's he's planted this church, this series of churches really throughout this area from the Black Sea on down. He has invested heavily in the spiritual lives and the development of these people. He loves these people. And it is because of his love for them that he is so angry with them and that he yells at them. Now, if you don't understand how you can simultaneously love somebody and yell at them, you're not a parent. Never have been one. Moms and dads, can I get an amen? Sometimes you got to yell at them, don't you? Sometimes you got to get mad as a hornet at those children. And you wouldn't feel that way if you didn't care, right? Paul is angry essentially because of his caring so deeply. He's saying, when I came to Galatia, Acts chapter 16 gives us kind of a scant view of that, that trip. He says, the Holy Spirit forbade me from going in another direction because Jesus wanted me to bring the gospel to you. He wanted you to hear this. And it seems like less than a year after you have received this message from me, there's this group who threatens to inoculate you. They're going to give you just enough of the real thing to make you think you have the real thing. They're called, in this context, the Judaizers. And they're introducing into your fellowship an artificial form 
of what the Holy Spirit has already revealed to you, and I am mystified that you're allowing them to inoculate you to the point that you're resistant to the real thing. God's desire is that all of his people live in the freedom of grace. Scripture also tells us that we have an enemy who wants us to continue to live enslaved. And so he will send agents even into our midst who will try to convince us to settle for cheap substitutes. And Paul calls out those substitutes in these next five verses. You know, every time I get on a plane to go to some other country, generally my practice will be when I land at the airport, I will take some American money from my pocket. I'll go to a a station in that airport and I'll, I'll exchange it and I'll get a substitute in in whatever denominations and currency exist in in that particular country. I'll do that. I have never gone up to one of those stations with Monopoly money. Never once. You know why? Because even in a foreign country, they're going to know that's not real. They're going to look at that and they're going to go, that's Monopoly money. That's essentially what Paul is saying. What the Judaizers are giving you is the spiritual equivalent of monopoly money. This isn't some different version of Christianity. This is not Christianity at all. It is another religion altogether, which is why he says in verse 7, this other gospel they're giving you isn't even a gospel. There's no alternative currency here. There is a form of what is called Christianity that is the most dangerous faith in the world to your soul. Sometimes in evangelical circles, we will rightly warn when we talk about the exclusivity and the superiority and supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ over all things, and we will warn of the danger of teaching that comes from some well-meaning people, people that may be friends of ours even, in other religions. But I got to tell you this morning, my greatest concern as a pastor, as I live in this century on this continent, my greatest concern is not Islam. It's not Buddhism, it's not atheism or agnosticism or Taoism or Shintoism or any other ism out there that would be separated. When I look at the people God has given me to pastor, I have to tell you that the thing that concerns me most is the kind of false religion that we read about here. One that uses the cross as a brand while simultaneously denying its power. Paul would warn his protege Timothy of this. 2 Timothy 3, 5, that there are those who have an appearance of godliness. There's a veneer of faith on top of it, but underneath they deny its power. The warning we see here from 2,000 years ago reminds us that not everything that bears a cross is in fact Christian. Be careful. Not everybody claiming to speak the truth actually speaks the truth. Satanic deceptions, cheap substitutes for grace abound. And in this initial solemn warning, before we can get to the good stuff, before Paul will will unfold for us in powerful life-transforming ways of how the real thing can make just a dynamite difference in your life, he's going to send a warning. Don't be inoculated to the real thing. And there's four ways to do that. Number one, you need to fear the drift. Fear the drift. In verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That word astonished is is interesting. Paul is using a word that, that when employed in a positive light, even in the New Testament, refers to a childlike wonderment. But when it's used in a negative way, like it is here, 
it refers to a significant level of shock and confusion. He's basically saying, I, I've only been gone a year. It's disbelief over their unbelief. I can't believe that you've just let this go, that you've let this teaching go. And the subject of his angst is that in a relatively short period of time, they've drifted. Now, that's, that's, we got to be careful here because what he's suggesting is not that it was immediate, but that it was rather quick. It brought shock to his soul that within a year's time it would come, but that doesn't mean this happened overnight. It still took a matter of weeks, even months, for this to happen. Scripture calls this apostasy. It's a gradual but eventual turning away from the faith. And even though in Galatia, Paul gives indication this happened rather quickly, it still didn't happen instantaneously. It took some time. In the United States, we already know the alarming number of young adults who leave the Christian faith during their college years. We love to blame that on liberal professors. One of these days, that, that argument's going to get as tired as it really is, and we're going to find out what the real root cause is. Your child's college professor is the least of their problems. Mom and dad, you need to raise them in the fear and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. You need to teach them by example and not just by words that Jesus is Lord over anything and everything. You need to answer and wrestle with hard questions with them. You need to not run when they start struggling with things. And when they see the authenticity of your faith, I don't care how liberal their college professor is. All that guy or gal is doing is just giving them an excuse to jump out. They've been looking for a reason to do it. But we, we get alarmed when we see things like this. So many is completely abandoned the faith. And a higher percentage of them in each subsequent generation never return. And I compare that reality with what I read from Paul here. And I, and I just have to say, I know that parents get concerned about this, but I wonder if that phenomenon really tears our insides out the way it did Paul. Even beyond being tormented by those large numbers is, is this question. Do we understand how that happens? You understand how apostasy happens? How does one turn away from complete loyalty from one idea to another? What, what Paul is describing here is, is gradual. It's not instantaneous, even though it's quick. Somebody who, over time, completely lets go of something they once held very tightly to. If you've been watching, if you're like me and you're an ESPN junkie, you saw this happen just this week. Green Bay quarterback Aaron Rodgers described his previous evangelical faith, got himself under the spiritual authority of a heretic named Rob Bell, and now he doesn't believe any of it anymore. You know what happens? There's a gradual falling away because you come under the influence of those who want to take you there. And you fall for it gradually. Several years ago, I was diagnosed with diabetes. Probably got a few folks in here that can relate to that. And Here's the problem when, when someone like me is diagnosed with a disease like that. I love me some bread. I do. I love bread. I love cake. That's my favorite kind of bread is cake. I, I, love, I love ice cream. 
I haven't, you know, and here's the thing, just accountability, pastor to his people, because I got to get on the wagon and stay on it just like some of you do with alcohol or drugs or, or anything like that. No major sugary substances, no chips, nothing of the kind like that since November the 18th. And God's been good to be gracious to me uh, and allow me to get on that wagon and stay on there. But the few, the first few years, and this is a genetic thing, I've got it in my family, but I was kind of on again, off again. Anybody else in here like that? A little bit loosey-goosey with the diet? Yeah, don't be quite so proud. You know. and, and here's the thing. The reason is because I didn't feel any different. I still had a high level of energy. I kept living and working. And, and so I would see a donut and go, I feel fine. And that period of time when I got a little loosey-goosey with my diet just happened to be around the same time that a dear sister in Christ who was a member of this congregation went into hospice care. Her name was Tricia Thomas. A lot, of, a lot of you folks know Sister Tricia. And she's graduated to glory. She's been with Jesus now for a couple of years, and, and, and we, we rejoice in that. But during that time when we were, we were letting her go, Amy and I would go over, and we would visit with her in her home, and we got to know her daughter, Shelly Parker, through that. Some of you know Shelly. Shelly was, uh, had, had a, just a fast-moving career up in the Chicago area, quit her job, came home to take care of her mom. And on one of those visits, I learned that Shelly had a background in healthcare administration. And I kind of let it slip that I wasn't doing so well with some of these disciplines. And if you know Shelly, you know that Shelly is about as tactful as a two-by-four. Okay? And she looked at me. Sometimes you need tactful as a two-by-four, amen? Sometimes that's what you need. It's real stone-faced. She said, Pastor, would you like for me to tell you how this story is going to end if you continue behaving this way? I'm not sure. <laughs> so she started describing for me what was going on at that moment on the inside of my body. Now, I couldn't feel it. That's how some of you, you go on your feelings. Your feelings are completely irrelevant if they keep bumping up against the reality that's been revealed to you in Scripture. Wake up. That's essentially what this young lady was telling me to do. And she started walking me through what would eventually happen to me. And at the end of that story, that woman was scary. She was scary. But sometimes when you have somebody truly care about you, you have to scare them. And the truth where my situation is concerned is you don't go from manageable glucose and A1C levels to losing a limb or going blind in a couple of days or even a couple of months. The scandal of that particular disease is that it happens gradually with little compromises and slips and the gradual development of unhealthy habits along the way, slow drift will lead to certain death. And what Shelley reminded me about what was going on with me physically happens to people spiritually. You've got to be afraid of this. That's what Paul is doing with regard to faith. He's saying, you didn't, you didn't just wake up one morning after, after all this time of faithfully believing the gospel that I brought to you. Satan doesn't work like that. He doesn't shock. He seduces. And I wonder how many people in front of me right now are in the drift. And with every passing day, you get further and further from the freedom that God intends for you. You need to fear 
the drift. Secondly, you need to know the root. Where does this false teaching come from? Where does this slide into apostasy come from? Well, Paul tells us in verse 7 what it's not. Not that there is another one. Like you're falling for another gospel. And let me correct myself here. That thing you're falling for is not the gospel. But there are some who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. There is no other message that will liberate your soul than the one Paul says, I shared with you when I first arrived in your province. But there's a couple of things causing you to drift. The first is, he says, there are some who trouble you. Some call this soul trouble. Could be a personal crisis or a hardship or tragedy or a loss that causes any normal person to just look to heaven and ask why. What's going on? God, where are you and what are you doing? And in that situation, the, the source of trouble at Galatia was false teachers had invaded the church and stirred the pot. He calls them agitators later on. These are teachers who believe that their job is to always keep something stirring. Let me throw this in for free in an election year. If you listen to Christian radio and the talk show host who claims that he or she is a Christian and the result of everything they say through those airwaves always raises your blood pressure, always makes you mad, always stirs you up, always gets you to the point where you see anybody that disagrees with you or them as an enemy, you're listening to a Judaizer. You're listening to somebody that may not even know Jesus. Because this is where it comes from. Somebody's always got to stir the pot because their goal is to leverage the personal struggle of impressionable Christians to their own advantage. There's troublesome people. And the second thing he points to here is twisted truth. Paul says they want to distort the gospel in this situation. That the particular false teachers in question have tried to persuade the Galatian Christians that if you really want a relationship with Jesus, all of the men have to be circumcised. Paul actually has some fun with this one later on, and we'll have some fun with it too. But for the moment, he's just describing the teaching. And you must be obedient to the whole law of Moses, including the religious dietary restrictions. So no more bacon, no more pork rinds. That's a sad existence, don't you think? It really is. And it is usually the situation when truth is twisted. It often doesn't present itself as a contrast to the gospel. It presents itself as an added bonus to the gospel. It's Jesus plus. And, and some of the things these people try are good things. Sometimes there's wisdom in submitting yourself to certain restrictions because it will help you be a better follower of Jesus. But then there are other times that submitting yourself to such things merely enslaves you. We see this in the example of Paul's life as well. Uh, he, he had Timothy, who is the product of a mixed marriage, but was pastoring a group that was overwhelmingly Jewish. He told Timothy, so you need to be circumcised because you don't need to put a barrier to the gospel in the way of, the, of your Jewish congregants. And almost in the same breath, he absolutely refused to allow Titus to be circumcised. Because in the situation of Titus and that congregation in Crete, apparently Titus' circumcision would have compromised the gospel. You say, Pastor, how do I know the difference? I mean, that almost sounds like situational ethics. Well, you know it in this way. And we'll see this throughout the rest of this letter. Truth 
is being twisted when Jesus is no longer at the center of it. That's how you know it's being twisted. These, these Judaizers, they still talked about following Jesus, but only as an adjunct to the law. They also use this word grace over and over and over again. But grace for these teachers was not the freedom in the power of God to live as God intended them to live. Grace for them was their own natural ability to white-knuckle it through obedience to the law of Moses. And the danger of abandoning the gospel is never stronger than when the stress of life increases and somebody offers you a magic pill that is something other than the finished work of Christ on the cross and the death-crushing, life-giving resurrection that empowers you to live the life that he intended. You need to fear the drift. You need to know the root. When people seek to always be stirring something up, when people seek to always be twisting the truth or just kind of opening the door, I had a seminary professor said this way, he said, most people should have minds like a screen door. They let in the oxygen it needs, but they keep out the bugs and the buzzards. He said, but there are a lot of people, they tend to be more fundamentalist types, that their, their mind is like, a, is like a steel door, like impenetrable, like a bank vault kind of door. They don't let anything in. It's all echo chamber. And then there are other people whose minds don't have a door. They'll just let anything and everything in. It feels good. Sounds good. Fear the drift. Know the root. Here's how you do that. Discern the truth. Now, we're coming now. I promise you this gets better in subsequent weeks. Don't leave thinking, man, this is going to be a really depressing series, okay? But before we get to the good stuff, Paul is about to unleash on us some of his harshest words in this letter. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. My, how our English translations sanitize what the Greek text often communicates so graphically. I've, our young people and parents, you should probably know this, by the way, I, they've been asking a lot of questions, and, and what, what's going to happen up until Pastor Joe gets here is Pastor Chris and I are sharing a little bit of that. He's doing most of it. They're, they're asking all kinds of questions. It was sex and dating and relationships last Wednesday night, but in a couple of weeks, I'm going to talk to them about language because they ask a question about language. Because as you can imagine, because when you were a teenager, I know I was, and I had to take that required foreign language in high school. You know what I looked up in the dictionary first? It was the cuss words. That's what I did, okay? Think a little less of your pastor if you want to, but that's what I did. And then I giggled because I knew how to cuss in Spanish, right? My parents couldn't. So they're asking about it. How do you, now, I'm not going to teach your kids that they should have a potty mouth, all right? So just rest easy. But oftentimes... In more conservative circles of Christianity, we think that our course of conversation involves a list of no-no words, and as long as we don't do that, we're okay, even if we slander and lie and gossip and do all these other kinds of things. What the Bible tells us, generally speaking, is that we should not let unwholesome speech come out of our mouth, which means our regular course of conversation really should not include four-letter words. If for no other reason than that's just evidence, you need an expanded vocabulary, okay? 
But it does teach us in the broader context, use good words to describe good things. Use bad words, sometimes really bad ones, to describe bad things. And the word for accursed here is the word anathema. Some denominations speak of anathematizing people or even entire congregations, which is to declare them to be outside the faith. Everywhere this word is used in the New Testament, it refers to someone God created for the purpose of ultimate destruction. I know that's a hard teaching, and unfortunately we don't have time to unpack a lot of it today, but if you'll look at Jude 4, you'll see this reemphasized. He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And of those people, Paul says to the Galatians, this is how you recognize them from who they, for who they really are. You want to recognize, discern the truth, which means you've got to pick out the counterfeits and the false teachers. And here's how you do it. If they deviate from anything, I have told you where the gospel of God's grace is concerned, let them be damned. That's what he says. Even if they come in angelic form. That's a bold statement. You've got to be really sure of yourself to say something like this, don't you? But even Peter says the following in 2 Peter 4, God, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to a chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Listen, if judgment is coming for the angels, it's coming for everybody else. And the point is, even angels are subject to judgment based upon the truth of the gospel. Therefore, Paul says, it doesn't matter how flashy they are or how winsome they seem or what kind of dental work they've had done or who their hairstylist is or how many books they've sold or how many people pack out an auditorium when they come to speak, even if they come to you with wings and a literal halo, if what they say about the grace of God through the person and the work of Jesus departs from what I have told you, recognize them as part of the damned. Wow, that's harsh. I know. I know. And the painful part of it is that today the message is the same. When any person brings a message about Jesus that deviates from anything given to us in the apostolic witness, the faith which Jude says was delivered once and for all to the saints, that's your Bible. You better get familiar with this thing. If it deviates in any way, we escape their attempted enslavement of our souls by recognizing them for who they are. This is tough. I, it's not a, one of my favorite parts of being a pastor. And there are some pastors that spend their whole ministry doing this. I mean, every sermon is about how somebody else is wrong about something. You go overboard with this. But part of Avoiding pastoral malpractice is to warn the people that God has given you. And not everything that bears a cross is, in fact, Christian. Sometimes people get upset about that. I had a guy leave the church about three years ago. And he actually told me, at least I appreciated the, the, the truthfulness of it, at least. He said, I, I just hate it when you critique another worldview or when you critique something else and you tell us you need to stay away from that because that's dangerous when you call something out as false teaching, Pastor, I, just, I hate that. I said, man, I'm, I, I'm sorry you feel that way, but you want to know what I hate? 
I hate religious quacks disguised as the legitimate preachers of the gospel who teach dangerous doctrines that eventually lead souls to hell. That's what I hate. That's what I hate. You want to avoid being seduced, you better stop being offended. You better get your nose in between the pages of that book that's in your lap. You better know it well. We got ways for you to do that. We got classes all over this campus, classes off campus, that'll teach you to, to recognize the agents of this seduction. Fear the drift, know the root, discern the truth. Here's the final way you do that. Know the fruit. This brings us to verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? It's like he's starting to, it's, it's almost like he, he writes this really angry screed and then, he, and then he picks up his pen from the parchment and he takes a deep breath. Maybe somebody puts a blood pressure cuff on him. Just calm down a little bit, Paul. And after about 10 minutes, he gets back down to around 120 over 80 and he goes, okay, I think I'm good now. And he puts his pen back to parchment. It's like it just, in one verse, it's like it just, it goes from this really angry, really vitriolic kind of, it to just all of a sudden he's calm. If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He, he recognizes in making these bold declarations to the people at Galatia that he's putting them in a really awkward and difficult position. Deciding who they're going to believe. That, that's what it is. Genuine servants of Christ hate this. They don't like being the subject. And I've had to navigate, personally, some really delicate situations in multiple churches over the years. Sometimes it starts out as you're trying to arbitrate or mediate between two warring parties in a church, and none brings as much stress as in, as, as in the middle. You get in the middle of that when both sides turn on you. Triangulation. Some of you got that going on in your families, and maybe you ought to talk to somebody about that. Right? They turn on you. And all of a sudden, Joel's not arbitrating the issue anymore. Now Joel is the issue. Um, if you lead long enough in any significant capacity, you're just going to have moments like that. As a dear friend of mine said, if you, if you want everybody to like you, you, you should not, under any circumstances, be a pastor. You should sell ice cream. That'll get everybody to like you. <laughs> People are going to challenge you. We know that because they, these false teachers challenged Paul. They're going to challenge your legitimacy. You're going to have to figure out how to lead them with that monkey on your back sometimes. And that's where Paul's at. That's why he introduces the letter in verse 1 by saying, my, my apostolic authority doesn't come from men. It comes through Jesus Christ and God the Father. It's because this group of teachers have infiltrated this church that he established and have convinced nearly everybody there that they are right and that Paul is wrong. And we can learn an awful lot about leadership, actually, by looking at Paul's response here. I don't do what I do to please men. I am a servant of Christ. Now, in about four chapters from this moment, Paul is in this very same letter going to use the metaphor of fruit to help us distinguish between the genuine works of the Holy Spirit and the cheap imitations that our flesh tries to produce. And, and what he's warning about in an initial sense here is this. If you want to live in freedom, you have to listen to the right source. And if you want to know the right source, you have to examine the fruit. The fruit of false teachers, 
They want to use you. They want to stir up trouble. They want to control you. They, they, want to, they don't necessarily have being faithful to the Lord as their top priority. There's an old saying that you can use people to build a ministry or you can use ministry that God has given you to build people. And oftentimes that's the difference. Living in the freedom of God's grace requires submission to leadership who have committed to guard that message with their very lives and are committed to speak the truth. This part of the text sometimes brings me to tears because this man who has been so passionate all of a sudden backs off because he understands, man, if I keep pushing this as hard as I push, I'm, I'm about to turn these people off. They're just going to think I'm an angry old man. And so he backs off a little bit. And he says, listen, I, I know I'm putting you in a difficult position, but it really is that serious. It's either them or it's me. And you are going to have to make a decision whether you want that cheap substitute they've given you or whether you want the real thing that I am giving you, which comes directly from Jesus through me. He loves them. So he offers them the truth. He is his authentic self. And then he leaves it to them. This is. This is what a pastor's heart looks like. It is. They tell you the truth because they love you. That's one of the reasons why when I'm up here, um, the staff has told me sometimes, he said, that, you know, when they, when they encourage me to go to this group or go to that group, oftentimes their, their wise counsel to me in that is there's some people in there that need to see you in an environment other than the stage. Because when you're up there, sometimes you're like, ah! Okay. And you're not always that way, but, but people need to see that's, that's not all of who you are. They need, to, they need to see you laughing and joking. Um, like last Monday night, they need to see your team lose and you actually handle that with grace. They, they need to, you know, joke about it, eat some more barbecue. They, they, need, to, they need to see that. There's a reason that distinction exists. When I'm up here, I can't be anybody's buddy. I just can't, no matter how much I'd like to be. But I can say this, after a blessed four years with this wonderful congregation of people, I love you more, far more than I did four years ago. And one of the reasons I know that is because I know this. I love you a whole heck of a lot more than I love what you think about me. I want you to know the truth. I want you to live in liberty and freedom. I believe with all my heart that Scripture alone prescribes that for you. And I am going to give that to you for as long as you will allow me to do it. Because before God, my greatest desire is to see everybody in front of me growing powerfully as a disciple of Jesus. Strong families that will raise up the next generation of spiritual warriors and won't even think twice about some liberal college professor throwing a monkey wrench in it all. One body acting as one body to indelibly alter the future of this tri-state area and the world. And I want that because I believe that's what Jesus wants. And I will stay by his grace committed to that outcome. I want to see you blessed and I want to see you walking in freedom. And I know because Paul writes this 
letter in this order. That one of the first steps is you've got to recognize the root and the fruit and everything else of what is holding you back from that life. One of my passions outside of preaching the gospel is, is being an advocate for religious freedom. Some of that comes from my, my Baptist roots. Uh, the fact that you may not even realize this, but it, it, the Baptists are really the ones to be credited for the First Amendment in many ways. I don't have time to go into all that history right now, but one of the things that we believe is that Jesus alone is Lord over the conscience of men and women, not the state. So whether it's a communist regime that prevents the free exercise of religion, if it's a radical Muslim tribe that has made up its mind that they're going to kill everybody that doesn't believe in them, or if it's fundamentalist Christians in the West who believe that freedom of religion somehow only applies to Christian denominations. Those ideologies, wherever they are found, they should be confronted because every person should be free. I believe that. But there's an underbelly to religious freedom that those of us who follow Jesus need to be aware of. And that is that anyone and everyone in a free society can peddle whatever they choose. And religion in the United States has become a huge marketplace. Everybody is selling something that they're calling good news. You want to live in the freedom Paul's talking about. You want your life to be driven by the grace that Paul describes. Make sure what you're getting is more than a mere inoculation from the real thing. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you follow. Be faithful to the gospel. Heavenly Father, Lord, may we take this warning, this two millennia old warning, from an apostle whose very life was transformed. May we take it to heart. May we exercise care. Lord, may the words from this podium and any other podium that are heard be judged solely and completely upon the standards of the written word of God. And Lord, may we be not just discerning, may we be powerful as a result of that. May we cast aside things that are holding us down, those ankle weights. Lord, so many ankle weights have crosses on them. And Father, you don't want us running like that. You want us to run free. And Lord, the life that you, through your servant Paul, describe in this letter is absolutely amazing. And so, Father, may we recognize in this very short part of the text those major barriers to living that life. May we cast them aside and may we live solely and completely for Jesus. I pray these things in his name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, 
I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.